we're going to, we're taking a little pause. Last week we ran into something that we need to come back to this morning. And so I'm going to just read again five verses from Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, I'm going to read the first <coughs> five verses of that. After I've read this, uh, I'd like to begin. I'd like you to watch a little clip on the life of William Borden. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. When William Borden, the heir to the multi-million dollar Borden Dairy Estate, graduated from high school, his gift was a trip around the world. Now, while your average 18-year-old is going to be living it up and enjoying the time of their life, Borden experienced a growing concern for the loss of the Middle East and Asia. He wrote home, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. In the back of his Bible, he wrote two words, no Reserves. Enrolling at Yale University, Borden promptly began a student ministry. By the end of his freshman year, he had 150 freshmen meeting for weeks. We're not going to do this the whole way through. So, we're getting a hard line to our computer, but we're on uh, wireless right now. It's not. Evidently not fast enough. I'm going to tell you the story of William Borden. William Borden wrote in his Bible, no, uh, <coughs> no return was one of the words that he wrote. He was a young man and he went to Yale. Uh, he was basically a heir to over a million dollar estate. And as the young man mentioned, imagine being in that position as an 18 year old. He went to Yale University and started a ministry of getting students into Bible studies on campus. After his freshman year, he had 150 students who were in Bible studies on campus. By the time he graduated as a senior, out of 1,300 students at Yale University, 1,000 of those students were in this ministry Bible study that he had. It was said that he could be seen many nights downtown helping the homeless and the poor in the area where he lived. He went on and went to a seminary preparing for the mission field. And at that point, he wrote in his uh, back of his Bible, no return. Or no return, and then he wrote no retreat. That was the second phrase that he wrote. He prepared and studied, and at age 27... He took a boat 
and was on his way to China with a heart for the Middle East. As he stopped in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis, and 30 days later, uh, William Borden died. In the back of his Bible next to the no return and no retreat, he had written no regrets. Now, when you look at the life of William Borden, you just kind of shake your head because it doesn't make sense. A man who obviously God had just grabbed hold of and his life ends at 27 years of age. Unfortunately, that's not a common, uncommon experience. And it is often hard to understand God's ways. It shouldn't because God has told us that His ways are not our ways. And so I guess on one hand we should expect that we are not going to understand often the things that God does. It's interesting that the first book written in the Bible was Job. Listen to his words to God. Today my complaint is bitter. God's hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find Him, that I might come even to His dwelling. If I go forward, He's not there. Or backward, I can't perceive Him. On the left, He hides, and I cannot behold Him. I turn to the right, and I cannot see Him. Why are times not kept by the Almighty? Why do those who know Him never see His days? you hear what Job is saying? He's saying, why doesn't God keep at least office hours? You know, why doesn't He answer my emails? Why doesn't He return my calls? Why doesn't He seem to be responsive? And so this morning, I, I want to pause here at an issue that we see in the book of Acts that it's easy for us to skim over if we don't stop and think about it. And it's the issue that we would call this morning unanswered prayer. I think it's a huge issue for a lot of people. I, I think it's the source of many people's lack of excitement about prayer and desire to pray. The issue here shows up in the early church, and although it's not spoken about, we can only imagine because these are people like you and I. These are not superhuman beings in the early church. These are people just like you and I with the same emotions, the same feelings, the same questions. And as we looked at last week, here we see you know, Peter, or James has taken in a very loved man in the church, and people are praying for him on his behalf, and he's executed. You know, a week later, they, they do the same to Peter, and they take Peter in, and he's miraculously saved. And so we have this question, certainly in the, in the hearts of Peter's or James' family, of, of why didn't God respond? And so the question... I'm sure it was created. And if we don't understand prayer, we can become easily disillusioned. 
In the book Huckleberry Finn, he writes about his experience with prayer. He writes, Miss Watson took me to a closet and prayed, but nothing came of it. She told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I would get it. But it weren't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. It weren't any good to me without hooks. By and by, one day, I asked Miss Watson, Watson to try for me, but she said I was foolish. and She never told me why, and I couldn't make it out no way. I sat me down one time back in the woods and had a long think about it. No, I says to myself, there ain't nothing in it. Words from Huckleberry Finn. Well, there are not a few people that come to that conclusion about prayer. I remember when I first started many years ago in youth ministry, and a, a guy came and uh, he brought his brother to youth group. I, re, I still distinctly remember it. He came up to me and I said, so what's your, what do you think about God? And he said, well, my grandmother was sick and I love my grandmother and I prayed to God and she died. So he said, I decided that I didn't believe in God anymore. It's not an uncommon experience. Let me begin this morning by talking a little bit about what is one of the biggest problems we face in America in terms of prayer. And it has to do with our cultural expectations. It has to do with the American dream. It has to do with how we're brought up. It has to do with what we expect. David Platt in his book Radical writes of an experience that he had uh, David Platt has, was recently called to be pastor of one of the largest megachurches in the United States. But he writes this in his book entitled Radical. Imagine all the blinds closed on windows of a dimly lit room. Twenty leaders from different churches in the area sat in a circle on the floor with their Bibles open. Some of them had sweat on their foreheads after walking miles to get there. Others were dirty from the dust in the villages which they had set out on bikes early that morning. They gathered in secret. They had intentionally come to this place at different times throughout the morning so as to not draw attention to the meeting that was occurring. They lived in Asia where it was illegal to gather like this. And if caught, they could lose their land, their jobs, their families, or their lives. I listened as they began sharing stories of what God was doing in their churches. One man sat in a corner. He had a strong frame. He served as head of security, so to speak. And whenever there was a knock at the door or a noise outside, everyone would freeze in tension and he would make sure everything was okay. He had a tender heart as he began to speak. Some of the people in my church have been pulled away by a cult, he said. This particular cult is known for kidnapping believers, taking them to isolated locations and torturing them. Brothers and sisters have had their tongues cut out of their mouths. This is not uncommon. As he shared about the dangers his members were facing, tears welled up in his eyes. I'm hurting, he said. I need God's grace to lead my church through these attacks. A woman on the other side of the room spoke up next. Some of the members in my church were recently confronted by the government. They threatened their family, saying if they didn't stop gathering to study, they would lose everything they had. I need to know how to deal, how to lead my church to follow Christ when it costs them everything. As I looked around the room, I saw everyone was now in tears. The struggles expressed by this brother or sister was not isolated. And then they said, we need to pray. 
They went to their knees, their faces to the ground. They began to cry out to God. Their prayers were not so much grandiose theology as more heartfelt. Oh God, thank You for loving us. Oh God, we need You. Jesus, we give our lives to You and for You. Jesus, we trust in You. They audibly wept before God as one leader after another prayed. After an hour, the room drew silent and they rose from the floor. Humbled by what I had just been a part of, I saw puddles of tears in a circle around the room. In the days since then, God has granted me many other opportunities to gather with believers from these churches in Asia. This is now three weeks later. Three weeks later, after my third trip to underground churches, I began my first Sunday as pastor of a church in America. The scene is very different. Dimly lit rooms were now replaced by an auditorium with theater-style lights. Instead of traveling for miles by foot or bike together, we had arrived in millions of dollars worth of vehicles. Dressed in our finest clothes, we sat in cushioned seats with cup holders. To be honest, there was not much at stake. Many had come because this was their routine. Some had simply come to check out the new pastor, but none had come at the risk of their lives. That afternoon, crowds filled the parking lot of our sprawling, multi-million dollar campus. Moms, dads, and kids jumped on inflatable games. Plans were discussed for using the adjacent land to build a state-of-the-art recreation field and facility. Now, please don't misunderstand this scene. It was filled with wonderful, well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians who wanted to welcome me and enjoy one another. People like you and people like me who simply desire community, who want to be involved in church and believe God's important. But as a new pastor, comparing these images with the fresh images in my mind, I could not help but think somewhere along the way, we have missed what is radical about our faith and replaced it, replaced it with what is comfortable. You know, in Luke 9, Jesus is talking to people, and it's a very interesting conversation because he's trying to talk people out of becoming a Christian. One guy says, I'll come, and Jesus says, you know what? You know, the foxes have den and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to stay. Are you willing to, are you willing to live as a homeless person? One guy said, i got to go bury my father. He said, let the dead bury the dead. And, and he, he's saying he's very... These, these very challenging statements. And it, you know, it's easy to try and find a way around this or to say, well, Jesus really didn't mean there what he was saying. But I think what Jesus was saying is that the Christianity is not about pursuing the comfortable route. He said there's a wide road and Jesus called it the easy road. Its end is destruction, but its way is easy. And then he talked about the narrow road and he said that's the hard one. Christianity is a hard road. I don't know how it's hard for you, but it's it should be. If you're living it out, it will be hard. When Jesus said, unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me, he, he was not inviting people to an easy road. It's hard for the American church. It really is. It's hard for us having grown up in this country not to be pursuing this life of trying to be comfortable. There was an article in the paper. It was, it was, it was an article in the church that had a... They were talking about a new 
$23 million facility that had been built. And right alongside the articles in the Christian periodical was also uh, the situation in Sudan. There were 350,000 people who were, who were facing possibly starvation by the end of the year. And in another article alongside it, they had raised $5,000 to go to Sudan. And the person reading the, editing the article, I just said it, it, it was very interesting just to see the contrast between those two. We see that David Platt writes in his reflection on that, and I'll read it for you. This is where we need to pause. We are giving in to the dangerous temptation to take Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we're more comfortable with, a nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, who would never give, would never call us to give everything we have. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all our affection. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that is, does not infringe on in our comforts because after all, he loves us just as we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, to avoid dangerous extremes, who wants us to avoid danger. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Well, he goes on, and I could go on this morning. But I want to come back to this question of, of why prayer is difficult for Americans and why it is difficult even for the American church. And I think it's difficult because many times what we do when we pray is we, we try to get God to maintain a level of comfort in our lives, a certain standard of living that we have. And when things get hard, we want relief. I know about this. I've grown up in this culture. This culture has been a part of my life. I wrestle. I wrestle with this issue in my own life and culture. When life begins to deviate from expectations I have for it, you know, when my, when my life begins to deviate from the script that I... Because I, we all have kind of this script for our lives. And when my life begins to deviate, you know, then I really began to earnestly pray. And I think that's probably normal for all of us to some extent. But the problem here is, the problem is that we're, we're living from the wrong script. We're living from the wrong script. And, and this is a very critical place. Because God has a script and I have a script and I began to pray. And at this juncture in, in a person's life, there are two conclusions that you will come to. One is, you will come to the conclusion that God, the prayer doesn't work. Because obviously God's not responding to your prayers for the script that you have, that you're calling him to live out in your life. And so, you know, either we come to that conclusion or we surrender our script and discover an amazing truth. And the amazing truth is that God always answers prayer. God doesn't answer every prayer according to my script, but he does answer every prayer according to his script. 
And so, if you're living out God's script, if we can get to the place where we surrender our script and, and live out His, then every prayer is an answered prayer. And let me tell you, that's not an easy place to get to. It is not easy to surrender the script of your life and to wholly open up your heart to God's script and, and what He has for your life. There are two ways we can approach prayer with two very different results. John Eldridge writes in his book, Wild at Heart, he says, I think, I think I'm, tr- I'm just trying to get God to make my life work easier, a client of mine confessed. But he could be speaking for most of us. We're asking the wrong questions. Most of us are asking God, why, why did you let this happen to me? God, why, don't, why won't you just... You know, fill in the blank. Help me succeed. Help my kids to straighten out. Fix my marriage. You know, all those things that we're crying out to God about. But to enter into a journey with God requires a new set of questions. God, what are you trying to teach me here? Not, how can I get out of this situation? What are you trying to teach me in this situation? What issues in my heart are you trying to raise through this? What is it that you want me to see? What is it that you're asking me to let go of? These are very different sorts of questions. You know, it's sometimes in those moments, those things we prayed the hardest against are the very things that God is bringing into our lives to accomplish His script for our lives. God is trying to bring us into that place of ultimate dependence upon Him. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus became a man just like us. And did you know that Jesus had no more ability to do a miracle than you do? Jesus couldn't turn water into wine. He couldn't say the things that he said by himself on his own accord. In fact, Jesus said, he said, apart from the Father, I do nothing. Jesus said, the only thing I say is what I hear the Father telling me to say. And so, what we see in Jesus is the perfect example of a man who is living, allowing God to flow through him and live his life out through him. Well, <clears throat> the scriptures warn us time and time again and about, you know, having this view of God as the, the heavenly Santa Claus. You know, we make out our list and hopefully we've been good enough and God will give us what we want. That is unfortunately a all too uncommon view of prayer and you know, how we view God. James 4, 3. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. You know, he says the problem is when you pray, you're, you're spending it on your own motive. What that means is, you're trying to fulfill your own script. What's God's script for your life? And so when you pray, you're, you're, you're working off the wrong script, is what James is saying there. In 1 John 5:14, he says if you ask anything... According to my will, I will answer it. Well, that's according to God's script. 
for your life. There's another verse in John 14:13, which has been uh, misused in, in, many, in many ways. You know, Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. It doesn't say anything about, here it doesn't say anything about asking according to my will. It just says, if you ask anything in my name, <coughs> and people think that that phrase in my name is kind of like abracadabra. It's kind of like a magic word. You know, if you pray and in the end you say, in Jesus' name, then it will be done. Well, <clears throat> we don't understand what that means in Jesus' name. I mean, if I go down to the, uh, if I go down to Menards and I'm working on a construction crew here, and uh, I walk in, I say, I'd like to buy some sheetrock uh, in Bob Johnson's name. Let's say Bob Johnson is the contractor. So. I walk in, I say, I, I'd like to do this in Bob Johnson's name. What does that mean? That obviously means that Bob Johnson has okayed it with Menards to pick up those materials. I'm, I'm doing it on his behalf, but it's understood. You know, I'm not going down there and buying a stove for my house in Bob's name. And so when Jesus said, you pray anything in my name, He's really saying, as you pray anything, it's another way of saying, as you pray according to my will, then I will grant it. You know, I grew up in Baptist tradition, and uh, since I was seven days old, I was in the Baptist church. And I remember once reading through the old minutes. In My church started in, in, 18, in the 1860s. Stanchfield, Minnesota. And I remember going back and every week the people got together to pray. And I remember reading through the minutes and they were always praying about revival meetings. And there were some amazing things that happened. And they had, a, they had a way back then of reaching people with the gospel. They'd have a Sunday evening service. They'd invite them out for a week. They'd have a speaker come in. And a lot of people got saved. Well, then the culture changed. And pretty soon, the, the people weren't coming in Sunday night anymore. You know, they weren't, the English, you know, it used to be everything was Swedish, and they came to hear the English, and they came to see the gas lights. But pretty soon, the culture wasn't coming into church anymore. But the church kept holding revival meetings for a while, and the church kept praying every Wednesday night. But I noticed, because I was a part of these, and the prayer seemed to move into, you know, things that we're concerned about. People slip discs and safe travel and, you know, gotta put, I have to put my pet down this weekend and I pray for a sunny day for the wedding uh, for my kids this weekend. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it, it didn't go deeper. And, and I began to just, to just think, this something doesn't seem right here. And... We see the early church as they get together, uh, Acts 4.23, and they're praying for boldness. They're praying for boldness. Uh, Ephesians 1.16, Paul prayed, I pray that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened so we might know the hope to which He's called us, His inheritance and the great power that's at work in our lives. In Ephesians 3.16, he's praying that we'll know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. When was the last time you just cried out to God? 
And you just cried out and said, God, show me the depth of your love. Show me the, uh, you know, the amazing truth of this hope. At the beginning of my message, <clears throat> I said prayer is not about our script. It's not about the American dream. It's about something else. And uh, it's about God's script. It's about, it's about moving my life into the purposes for which God has for my life. It's about surrendering that script. It's about asking the question, what is it that God is wanting to do with my life? It has very little to do with my American dream. It's about walking through those refining processes which are often the opposite, the opposite of the comfort. It's learning to live our lives abandoned to Him. You know, Romans 8 says that, it says, we do not know how to pray as we ought. It says the Spirit intercedes on our behalf before God. So I, you know, I can just envision I'm praying to God and the Spirit comes, no, He doesn't mean that. That's not really what he needs right now. He wants out of this? No. He needs to stay in this. Because I have a work. I have a refining work I'm doing in his life right now. And so the Spirit uh, often intercedes in ways that we don't even understand. Well, let me conclude. And I want to say this as, as I come to an end. You know, Jesus told the story of a man in a field and he stumbled across his treasure and so he sold everything he had. Everything. He cashed it in. He didn't even think twice because he realized the value of the treasure in the field. The reason you abandon your script and your own comforts is, is not because God doesn't want you to be fulfilled. We abandon our script, our desires to have things our way because we found a treasure. And it's, it's not about losing. It's about finding a treasure. It's not about losing. It's about finding a treasure. You know, that's what the story of the prodigal son was all about. Remember the two brothers? The one had found the treasure, and it was the unconditional love of his father. The other one was still working for it. Now, he's the one that said, Dad, I've served you all my life. You never throw me a party. The truth is that we are most fulfilled when we've released our grip on all of these things of this world that we think we need to make us happy and content. And we realize that He is a treasure. You know, in Philippians 3.8, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Look at what he says. Philippians 3.8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Paul's saying, why would I want to hang on to rubbish when I can have Christ? And what, what I'm saying this morning is, why do we want to hang on to our script when... You know, when we can walk with God and we can experience His script for our life and, and His presence in our lives, and when that becomes the focus of prayer, 
when that becomes the focus of prayer, you will wake up in the morning with a, a new desire and a new heart and a, and a new anticipation. Because it's not about trying to manipulate God to do this thing in our life, but it's about coming alongside of Him and, and experiencing His power and His work in our lives. You know what? Through sometimes the toughest of things. Through sometimes the hardest of things. Through sometimes the most uncomfortable things. This morning I, I conclude with a just an invitation to consider this kind of prayer. And uh, I'd like you to just view this little clip and then I'll close this morning. Pray to the Lord. Pray to Him while He can be found. For He is near us whenever we pray. His eyes open, his ears attentive, listening to what is said in hearts and whispers. When tears fall down cheeks, in silence, when no words can be said but thank you, according to his compassion, according to his kindness and his great love, he is our dwelling place. So cry aloud, call on him, bowed on bended knees, confess sins, offer petitions, watch and pray, find your own mountainside, your own garden of Gethsemane. Pray in lonely places when things are good and not so good. Pray for those who are unable to pray for themselves. Stand guard. Mind your post. Stand on the wall in the gap as words lifted to God build bridges to nations. Prayers are seeds planted. Even if you never get to see them grow, God is the gardener paying close attention to the soil of prayers lifted for generations yet to be born. In the place of prayer is where peace can be found and we may not know how or why but we know who and when you are spent of words to pray he prays for you taking all the things you can't give voice to surrendering them at the feet of one who is all-powerful whose words extend past time whose love is so wide and deep that it is immeasurable Pray and don't give up. Pray earnestly. Raise your voice and quiet your soul that God may dwell in your heart. Pray when you're anxious. Pray when you're afraid. Be watchful and thankful. Pray continually. Pray to the Father, to a God who is faithful, to a God who hears. Cry out for the living God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us how to pray. Father, we think of this early church filled with tragedies. And Lord James wouldn't be the first or the last. And yet, Father, we see people filled with hope and people filled with rejoicing and people filled with praise, Father, uh, because they have surrendered their lives to a different dream, because they are pursuing a different treasure which is not tied to the things of this world. Father, our prayers are, and our joy is so often so tightly bound to the temporal things 
And so, Father, we pray that You would teach us by Your Spirit that we may walk with You, that we may uh, sit in Your presence, that we may learn a new way to come before You. Not simply seeking something for ourselves, but, Father, seeking to learn and know what You are doing in the midst of things we don't even understand going on in our lives. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us today. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.